Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode seven of the CCRN podcast. We are currently still in the cardiovascular system, and in episode seven, we are going to be tackling hemodynamics. Now, a couple of housekeeping items before we get started. Uh, Please remember to head over to my website, which is called khoppypresents.com. There you'll be able to subscribe. I hope that you'll subscribe. For those of you that are back again for another episode, thank you so much for coming back to uh, tune in to another episode. And for those of you that are brand new, we are taking a walk through the core curriculum for critical care nursing in preparation for the CCRN exam. You can pick and choose the episodes that work best for you. There will be many of them. And like I said, right now we're working on the cardiovascular system, but there will be many more to come. So you can tailor make this review to meet your individual needs and choose those episodes that would benefit you the very most. So going back to my website, a couple of other things that I want to mention, not only can you subscribe and receive information as to uh, when podcasts are launched, but also on my website, I have brain teasers. There's a link to brain teasers where after sections of the review, I have put together a brain teaser in order to help you study. So the one that's currently available is the one on cardiac conduction, anatomy, and physiology. And it's constructed in a a crossword puzzle format, just to kind of change things up a a little bit and get you thinking. So feel free to, to print that off my website. The answers are also available for you there as well. So another thing you can find on my website is you can find links to all of the podcasts that are currently available. Another thing I would like to mention is if you are wanting to host a CCRN or a PCCN review, either perhaps at your facility or maybe your AACN group would like to host a a review course, I am definitely available for that either virtually or in person. So again, please contact me via my website. So without further ado, let's get into talking about hemodynamics. 
And certainly this is one of the things that we are all about in critical care, hemodynamic monitoring, looking at hemodynamic parameters, and incorporating them into our clinical decision-making, which is so extremely important. So I'm going to start out with some basics here and define some terms, and then we're going to talk about how we integrate those terms in determining where our patient is physiologically and what their needs, uh, what their needs are. So starting out with blood pressure, easy enough to start out with blood pressure. So really, if we were to look at it, blood pressure is equal to cardiac output uh, times systemic vascular resistance. And so we see then that blood pressure is really influenced, very highly influenced by changes in cardiac output as well as SVR. Now, of course, most commonly we measure uh, blood pressure using an arterial line in critical care. Doesn't always have to be that way, but certainly most of the time we have an arterial line in place. And most commonly we use the radial artery. And the reason why we use the radial artery, of course, is because the ulnar artery is uh, nearby to provide collateral flow to the hand. So that's why it is whenever we put in a radial arterial line, we have to perform the Allen's test. The Allen's test assesses the patency of the ulnar artery, guys, not the radial artery. It assesses the patency of the ulnar artery since we are going to be depending upon the ulnar artery in order to perfuse the hand since we're going to be cannulating the radial artery. Also, it calls on us, knowing that we have put a cannula in an artery, it calls on us to closely monitor the neurovascular um, assessment of, of the hand, the color, the temperature, sensitivity, and so on. Because after all, we have a cannula that's sitting in an artery. So when you look at systolic pressure, you think about the force of contraction, right? Systole, you think about force of contraction. And so it's like the maximal pressure that is uh, required in order to eject blood from the left ventricle out in the systemic circulation. Or if we're looking at, quite honestly, pulmonary artery systolic, it's the same thing. So when we're looking at PA pressures, we're looking at the force of contraction against pulmonary vascular resistance, the force that is needed for that right ventricle in order to eject blood out into the PA. So the same concepts that we think about on the left, we also have to think about over on the right. Now let's talk a little bit about general systemic arterial blood pressure. We have an A-line in our patient. And what are some of the influential factors that have an impact on systolic and diastolic pressure? Well, first of all, anything that causes a drop in cardiac output is definitely going to have an impact on systolic blood pressure. So we see the systolic blood pressure go down. So perhaps it's a person that's dry. Maybe it's a bleeding patient, somebody that's dehydrated, for example. 
So now we see the systolic blood pressure go down. Now, one of the things that we've been taught kind of from little on in critical care is that cardiac output and systemic vascular resistance are inversely related. And you know what, guys, we actually see that manifested in the blood pressure when we see the systolic blood pressure drop in response to a drop in cardiac output. Again, it might be a dry patient or a failing heart. But then related to catecholamine release on the part of the body, so our body's epinephrine and norepinephrine are released. And what we see then is we see the diastolic blood pressure climb. And so the end product of all that, guys, is we're going to have a narrowed pulse pressure. That's reflective of what? It's reflective of, fa- of the fact that the systolic uh, pressure drops, cardiac output drops, and systemic vascular resistance goes up as a compensatory mechanism. So what is normal pulse pressure? Well, guys, just think about normal blood pressure. Okay, so 120 over 80, 120 over 60, let's just say. The way that you determine what a pulse pressure is, is just subtracting the diastolic from the systolic number. And by the way, guys, in taking either the CCRN or the PCCN exam, that might be some math that you encounter on the exam where they give you a patient's blood pressure and you have to, either in response to a story problem or whatever, you have to know what the patient's pulse pressure is. So pretty easy math, right? You just subtract the diastolic from the systolic pressure. So we're looking at a uh, pulse pressure somewhere around uh, 40 to 60 would be real normal. Now, what happens when the pulse pressure narrows? Well, we said the cardiac output drops and the systemic vascular resistance increases. And so we see blood pressures like 70 over 50. Well, 70 over 50, check out the pulse pressure on that. You're winding up with a pulse pressure in the 20s, maybe pulse pressure in the 30s. So that is definitely a stand up and take notice sign when your pulse pressure narrows. So be aware of that. I mean, think about it, guys. Whenever we give catecholamines IV, so if we're giving epinephrine or norepinephrine or dopamine, we're giving infusions of catecholamines, we see that diastolic blood pressure climb. And of course, we see the systolic pressure hopefully climb as well, but we're seeing an increased force of contraction And we're also seeing, as manifested by the increase in diastolic blood pressure, we're seeing an increase in vascular tone. Now let's turn the tables a little bit and let's talk about a septic patient. That's a real good example. So we know related to some of the uh, toxic metabolites and mediators that are released in the sepsis process, we see that uh, vascular tone decreases. So one of the things that should be a red flag in our head 
is when we have a person whose blood pressure seems to be trending down. Maybe they have more fluid needs. You're finding them giving, uh, finding that you're giving them more fluids or more boluses. And as you look back on the patient's blood pressure trend, you see that the diastolic blood pressure is trending down. So this should be a, you know, a, a, definitely a siren going off in your head thinking, oh my gosh, you know, is my patient becoming septic? Because as vascular tone decreases, your diastolic blood pressure drops, your pulse pressure widens. You also see your systolic trending down as well. So now all of a sudden, you have a patient that has a diastolic blood pressure in the 40s. And now they're requiring more fluid challenges. And they may or may not at this point be spiking a fever. So all of this is just, you know, part of that clinical decision-making based on some very kind of basic routine hemodynamic parameters. What I always like to tell nurses, because, you know, when you get into critical care, you think about, you know, all of the terms and catheters and things like that. You think about flow track and swan and, or PA catheter, you know, it doesn't take all that to be able to determine that your patient is heading south, right? A blood pressure, a heart rate, and a physical exam uh, should pretty much lead you in the right direction to begin with. So let's talk about the mean arterial pressure. The mean arterial pressure is, I like to think about it as the net driving force that drives blood to the tissues. So it's a very important perfusion indicator. In fact, when we are titrating our vasoactive medications, we are titrating them to the mean arterial uh, blood pressure. That MAP is basically a, a kind of consistent uh, evaluation of the patient's perfusion pressure. And basically, we typically titrate vasoactive medications to maintain the mean arterial pressure at least 60. Now, that's in many cases, but not all cases. For example, if you look at the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines, one of the things they say in the guidelines is that we should strive for a mean arterial pressure of 65 millimeters of mercury. Now, when we take a look at normal systolic, diastolic, and mean arterial pressure, normal systolic, uh, 90 to 140 is kind of a textbook norm. Diastolic, 60 to 90, with a mean arterial pressure, 70 to 105 millimeters of mercury. Again, we typically use as our kind of our line in the sand, if you will, for most of our patients on an MAP of at least 60 and 65 in the case of patients who are septic. Now, what I'd like to do is I'd like to walk through the hemodynamic parameters that we use commonly in critical care. And then I'd like to go back and break each one down in terms of what causes that particular parameter to be altered, whether increased or decreased. 
So heart rate, okay, we've got that. That's self-explanatory. No definition needed there. Mean arterial pressure, we talked about it. Now, cardiac output. Cardiac output, normally four to eight liters per minute, basically tells us about the amount in liters that's being put out uh, by the heart each minute. So that's our cardiac output. However, it doesn't really take into consideration the patient's body surface area. And so that's why we consider the cardiac index much more definitive in terms of assessing tissue perfusion because the cardiac index is individualized. It's like it takes the cardiac output and it individualizes it for the patient's body surface area. So if I have this big six foot, six foot two guy, and I have this little tiny five foot uh, woman, let's say, and let's say I shoot a cardiac output and I find that both of them are four liters. Well, for four liters, let me tell you, the, the gal, the, the small gal is probably doing just fine, but the big guy is probably in serious trouble because for his body surface area, we need a whole lot more flow than four liters of cardiac output per minute. So the cardiac index then takes into account the body, the patient's body surface area. And so normal cardiac uh, index is 2.5 to 4.1 liters per minute per meter squared. So the meter squared is, is taking into consideration the patient's body surface area. Stroke volume. If you use flow track, for example, you're all about stroke volume and watching uh, the impact of fluids or inotropes or vasopressors on the uh, stroke volume and whether it's increased by 10% or it's not increased by 10% with, um, with fluid administration or inotropes or vasopressors. So the normal stroke volume is 60 to 120 milliliters per beat. However, once again, one of the important uh, indices there is to look at the stroke index. The stroke index is, or stroke volume index, you can call it SVI, that's just fine, is 30 to 65 milliliters per meter squared per beat. So stroke volume is telling us how much volume the ventricle is putting out with each beat. When we get an indexed value, then um, that index value individualizes it for the patient's body surface area. One of the things that I like to teach in going over flow track is the way that it is set up, you can actually change the parameters that you're looking at. You can pick out four of them. And the ones that I recommend using are, number one, mean arterial pressure is one. Another one is SVI, stroke volume index. So you can watch it specific to your patient's body surface area. So another one is the cardiac index. And then lastly, um, the, the last parameter would be the diastolic blood pressure. 
So those are the four parameters that I always recommend using when using a flow track device, because by watching that diastolic pressure, you can look at the trends of narrowing or widening pulse pressure. So think about the next time you have a patient where you're using uh, flow track to monitor cardiac performance. Central venous pressure. Central venous pressure is about two to six millimeters of mercury. Um, and central venous pressure or right atrial pressure tell us about the right atrial or the pressure in the right atrium. And so it gives us a great overview of right ventricular preload. What is the filling pressure over on the right side of the heart? So again, normal central venous pressure or right atrial pressure is two to six millimeters of mercury. Now we derive this number from the uh, proximal port, typically a blue port of the pulmonary artery catheter. So moving on then, we can talk a little bit about the pulmonary artery pressure. Well, I always tell people, just think about it as the blood pressure of the lungs, right? So we have PA systolic and PA diastolic. So when you're reporting a right atrial or CVP pressure, you're really uh, reporting a mean pressure. The waveform for a central venous pressure or right atrial pressure is just a small little undulating waveform typically. And so you take the mean pressure on end exhalation. So it's very important, guys, whenever you take your pressure measurements, those measurements need to be taken on end expiration. Now, just think about this for a second. When you zeroed your transducer, you zeroed your transducer to atmospheric pressure, did you not? And so when is the chest at atmospheric pressure? Well, the chest is pretty much at atmospheric pressure before the next breath is delivered. So matching up how we zeroed the transducer with the respiratory cycle, if we make sure that our pressures are taken at end exhalation, we will be most accurate. So let's get back to the pulmonary artery pressure, um, which is where we left off before we talked about uh, zeroing and atmospheric pressure and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the PA pressure, of course, is another um, parameter that we measure on end exhalation. It is an arterial wave. So much like what we see out in the uh, systemic vascular bed, when we measure an arterial pressure, we see systole, we see a dichrotic notch, and we see diastole. That is the normal arterial pressure waveform. So when we communicate PA pressures, we communicate them as a systolic, a diastolic, and a mean. Now, normal systolic PA pressure is 15 to 30, diastolic 5 to 15, with a mean being somewhere around about 10 to 20. Now, you may have noticed that I skipped right by the right ventricle and went right from right atrial pressure into pulmonary artery pressure. 
Well, the reason for that is the, the pressures that we continuously monitor are things like right atrial pressure and pulmonary artery pressure. The only time really that we can expect to encounter a right ventricular waveform and a right ventricular pressure is when we're in the midst of inserting the pulmonary artery catheter. Now, that gives us an entirely different type of waveform. The waveform kind of looks like VTAC, really. And so we uh, measure it as a systole over diastole type of pressure. Right ventricular pressure normally is 15 to 30 over 0 to 8. Again, 15 to 30 over 0 to 8. Keeping in mind, of course, that the only time we should normally see this waveform and this pressure is during pulmonary artery catheter insertion. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit later about troubleshooting mechanisms and what happens when the tip of the PA catheter slips back into the right ventricle and we identify a right ventricular waveform and pressure. We'll be talking about those troubleshooting mechanisms a little bit later because indeed they are on the test. So I just wanted to take a moment and back up and just talk just briefly about right ventricular pressure because if you're marching the catheter tip through the heart, um, it follows the right atrial pressure, of course, but it's not something that we continuously measure. So let's get back to the things that, that we trend. We talked about right atrial pressure. We talked about pulmonary artery pressure, and we also made a little pit stop and we talked about right ventricular pressure. Now we need to talk about the pulmonary artery occlusive pressure or wedge pressure. Basically, we get a wedge pressure when we inflate the catheter tip and the catheter tip then becomes wedged in a smaller vessel. And by wedging the catheter tip and inflating that balloon, we actually kind of close off right-sided influence in terms of pressure. So if you think about it, the pulmonary artery catheter, once the balloon is inflated, only looks, is only able to look forward. So if you think about it, forward would mean looking at pressure inside the pulmonary venous system as well as the left atrium. So we say then that a pulmonary artery occlusive pressure or wedge pressure gives us an indirect look into the left side of the heart. Now, technically, it's only going to give us a look into the left atrium. However, if we have a decent mitral valve, in other words, uh, there's no mitral valve stenosis or mitral regurge, it gives us a pretty nice indirect look over into the filling pressure and volume in the left ventricle. So while the central venous pressure or right atrial pressure tells us about right ventricular preload, the pulmonary artery occlusive pressure or wedge pressure tells us about the filling pressure over on the left side, minimally the left atrium, but with an intact competent mitral valve we're also looking at left ventricular filling there. Now on the test, just kind of an FYI, um, the wedge pressure will be called PAOP, pulmonary artery occlusive pressure. You know, after having been in critical care for 37 years, 
this wedge has undergone many, many different um, descriptions or names, let's say, out in the literature. When I first started, it was called a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. And then it was called a pulmonary wedge pressure. And then it was later then called pulmonary artery occlusive pressure. And even though the name has changed many different times in the literature, still at the bedside, we all know and we've all referred to the thing as a wedge pressure. And the wedge pressure is an indirect look at left ventricular filling, normal wedge pressure, 8 to 12 millimeters of mercury, but we all know that it's very uncommon for us to find normal people in the ICU and especially warranting the insertion of a pulmonary artery catheter. So we typically find that patients need a bit of a higher left-sided filling pressure, a little bit higher of a wedge pressure in order to get optimal cardiac output and tissue perfusion. Another thing I have to mention here is that I know that it's customary for some ICUs to um, inflate the catheter tip that's part of uh, critical care nursing practice, while in other institutions, in other ICUs, the catheter tip is not inflated unless there's a provider order or unless the provider does it. So I just want to make sure and call that out. I also want to make sure and call out the fact that when you take the CCRN exam, they will expect you to know about the the wedge pressure and what it indicates. So be prepared for wedge-related questions on the test, even though in the clinical environment, you may not be uh, wedging the catheter tip. Now, when we don't uh, wedge the catheter tip, what we trend then is the pulmonary artery diastolic pressure because the PA diastolic pressure is usually within about four to five millimeters of mercury of the wedge pressure. That's not always the case. And we will be getting into, in just a bit, we'll be getting into cases in which the PAD doesn't even come close to approximating the wedge but that is what's used in uh, ongoing monitoring of wedge pressure um, or left-sided filling when we don't wedge the catheter tip. And of course, when we do wedge that catheter tip, we're only uh, wedging it for a couple of respiratory cycles, right? I mean, we are occluding a vessel. We certainly would not want to be doing that on an ongoing uh, basis in monitoring our patients. In fact, when we get into talking about uh, troubleshooting, we will talk about what happens when the, the PA catheter softens up to body temperature and the tip of the catheter advances on its own without being inflated and how we need to recognize that and how we need to intervene. So with that said, let's go ahead and just continue through the remainder of our parameters, and then we'll start getting into talking about abnormals, why we see what we see, and kind of moving forward from there. So we just finished with the PAOP, the pulmonary artery occlusive pressure. And so now let's get into talking about some of the other pressures that 
we see when we do our calcs. So systemic vascular resistance, 800 to 1400 dynes per second per centimeter to the, the minus fifth. Like we're really going to know all that. I just say dynes and call it a day. So 800 to 1400, 800 to 1200, you'll see either, either of those actually in the critical care textbooks. So, um, just to date myself a little bit, guys, can you believe when I first started critical care that we had our pocket calculator and we calculated our own SVR based on the patient's mean arterial pressure, the right atrial pressure and their cardiac output? Can you even believe that? Believe that we did our own calcs. Oh, well, moving forward, we can take the SVR and also index it to the patient's body surface area. And so if we do so, the SVRI then becomes 2,000 to 2,400 dynes. And that's per meter squared based on the patient's body surface area. So the SVR is really what determines, I mean, that is telling us about the afterload of the left ventricle, the resistance against which the left ventricle has to pump. Over on the right side, however, uh, we have PVR. PVR does not stand for peripheral vascular resistance, guys. It stands for pulmonary vascular resistance. And it represents the resistance against which the right ventricle has to contract in order to be able to eject out into the pulmonary arterial circuit. Once again, uh, the PVR can be indexed to the patient's body surface area, in which case we have a PVRI of 225 to 315. So one of the things that I want to bring up for this exam is that other than cardiac index, you are not asked about indexed values. The only exception, of course, being cardiac index. The rest of the values that we have discussed thus far, minus the index values, that's basically what you're expected to know for the exam. So normal hemodynamic values and the only indexed value being the cardiac index. You don't need to know stroke volume index. You don't need to know... Um, uh, systemic vascular resistance index, pulmonary vascular resistance index, or nothing, or anything along those lines. Also, when we get our calcs, we can take a look at the performance of the left and right ventricle, left ventricular stroke work, stroke work index. Again, individualized for the patient's body surface area. You won't get it on the exam, but that is 45 to 65 normally, where over on the right side, you'll see a stroke work of five to 12. Now I, I want to bring up again, what we had talked about before, um, with right-sided versus left-sided work. We talked about that in the A and P section, and we actually see it here manifested in the left ventricular and right ventricular stroke work indices. So before getting into talking about abnormal values and, and what causes abnormal values to occur, I just want to take a, a few minutes and talk a little bit about the monitoring system. 
Because the bottom line is your numbers are only as good as the monitoring system that you have set up. So looking at the transducer, for example, transducer must be leveled and balanced uh, in order to get accurate pressures. It needs to be zeroed, zeroed to atmospheric pressure. So we know that we take the cap off and, you know, off to the patient, open to air. We all learned that when we were first learning critical care. And we provide then the transducer information about what atmospheric pressure is. And then we press zero or whatever we do on our monitor in order to uh, zero the transducer. If the transducer is not zeroed properly, your measurements are not going to be accurate. If the transducer is not placed properly, uh, the zeroing isn't even going to matter because when we talk about proper placement, the transducer needs to be placed in the fourth intercostal space midway between the sternum anteriorly and the spine posteriorly. That is going to give us our best pressure measurements. So that's called the phlebostatic access. So making sure that the transducer is at the phlebostatic axis and that we have the transducer zeroed, uh, which is essential. Zeroing should take place after any time uh, you draw blood off the, the circuit or any time the shift changes. So that should be part of your beginning of shift routine minimally every 12 hours. If the transducer is too low, your pressures are going to go up. If your transducer is too high, your pressures are going to go down. So they're inversely related. Nothing worse than finding out that a patient has received medication based on an inaccurate pressure because the transducer was on the floor, for example, and we were titrating to a pressure that was through the roof as a result of that. Let's talk about the head of the bed. The head of the bed does not have to be flat. The head of the bed may be up and it may be up to a maximum of 60 degrees. But again, bring the head of the bed up, re-zero the, the uh, transducer and take your pressures. Another common problem is uh, movement of the patient. So if you've just turned the patient and you're going to go ahead and obtain your pressures and document those, please wait five minutes. In fact, some texts say up to 15 minutes wait after you've turned the patient before you take your pressure measurements. We also need to ensure that we have assessed for the accuracy of the transducer and the transducer's ability to accurately determine uh, a pressure. And so we do that through square wave testing. With square wave testing, we are rapidly flushing our tubing. And what we are looking for when we abruptly release the flush is we are looking for the oscillations that we see when we release the flush and whether or not we have a square forming. Because the moment we push in the flush device or pull the pigtail, whatever type of tubing system you have or transducer system that you have, and you flush it, the line goes up on your monitor 
and then it plateaus. And then when you release, you should see an immediate downstroke, if you will, producing what's called a square wave. So we're interested in the appearance of the square wave as well as the oscillations at the end of the wave. It's normal and desired to have just a couple of oscillations at the end of the square wave. That will ensure that our transducer will be able to accurately uh, interpret pressure. Now, what if you have a whole bunch of oscillations at the very end? That means that your system is underdamped. And one of the reasons for underdamping might be little micro bubbles in the transducer or in the transducer tubing or system. Or it could be related to extra length of tubing being attached, which really isn't that common of a cause. Most likely you've got some bubbles in the transducer or the system somewhere. Um, the other thing is, is what about a system that's overdamped? So you go ahead and perform your square wave test and you find that you really, it, it looks kind of sloppy going up, sloppy coming down, like you don't even have a square wave and or you don't have uh, any oscillations at the end. Now you have to be thinking about kinks or clots or air in the system. So again, um, the square wave test really is important in determining the overall accuracy of the transducer in terms of interpreting uh, pressures. A chest x-ray is also going to be invaluable in helping us to locate the uh, tip of the pulmonary artery catheter, which needs to be positioned in what's called West Lung Zone 3. And that is where we have the pulmonary artery catheter tip below the level of the left atrium um, when we're doing an anterior chest film. Last but not least, if you are using anything with fiber optics and oximetry, that device also needs to be calibrated in order to ensure that we're getting accurate data. So now let's take some time and go over abnormals. Let's march through our hemodynamic parameters that we talked about uh, earlier, and we went over all of the normals. And let's talk a little bit about what can cause increased or decreased values. We started out with the right atrium. We said the right atrial pressure is our parameter that tells us about right ventricular filling. So needless to say, anything that increases right ventricular filling is ultimately going to increase uh, right atrial pressure. Some examples of this would include hypervolemia, tricuspid valve dysfunction, whether you're talking stenosis or regurg, anything that causes right ventricular failure, including RV infarction. So think about what it is that is most likely to cause the RV to fail. It's going to be infarction or it's going to be anything that causes pulmonary hypertension. So that brings up that whole spectrum of patients that we take care of with COPD, um, anybody that has hypoxic-related 
pulmonary vascular vasoconstriction. So anybody with a PO2 of less than uh, 60, that basically defines hypoxia. Um, maybe it's somebody that we're taking care of critical in critical care with ARDS, or maybe it's a person that has pulmonary hypertension as a result of mitral valve dysfunction and backup of flow. So it might be a mitral valve stenosis or a mitral uh, valve regurge. Other things include constrictive pericarditis or cardiac tamponade, or face it, left ventricular failure can be a precursor to right ventricular failure as well. Things that decrease right atrial pressure include hypovolemia. That just makes sense, right? Because preload drops or vasodilation, anything that causes vasodilation. So it could be a patient that is becoming septic and we're seeing our diastolic blood pressure drop. And as the vessels dilate, we have a decreased amount of venous return and therefore right atrial pressure goes down. Now, again, right ventricular pressure, we said that that's not really something that we, something that we monitor on an ongoing basis, but certainly if we were looking at what can cause the right ventricle to fail due to increased pressure, again, we would be going back to uh, infarction, heart failure, pulmonary hypertension of any cause, including things like um, pulmonary embolism. In fact, guys, when patients go into or develop the signs and symptoms of pulmonary embolism, one of the things that we do is we do an echo to evaluate whether or not the RV is involved and whether there's acute RV dilatation associated with the pulmonary embolism. Other things that can cause the RV to have a decrease in pressure is just kind of the same as what we talked about with the right atrium, hypovolemia or excessive uh, vasodilation because that is what is going to affect right-sided filling. Pulmonary artery pressure, what causes increased pressure? Again, the hypervolemia, uh, pulmonary hypertension, whether it's related to hypoxemia or hypercapnia, positive pressure ventilation, uh, PEEP can increase PA pressures, constrictive pericarditis, cardiac tamponade, and left-sided heart failure. The things that decrease PA pressures, again, we're going with hypovolemia and excessive vasodilation. So could be a septic shock picture, could be a neurogenic shock, anaphylactic shock, or a person that's on vasodilator therapy. Pulmonary artery occlusive pressure, what can cause it to go up includes, certainly PEEP therapy can cause your PA pressure to go up too much volume, hypervolemia, and some of the same common threads that we saw before, mitral valve dysfunction, whether it's stenosis or regurge, constrictive pericarditis, cardiac tamponade, LV failure, or severe aortic stenosis. What can cause the wedge pressure or PAOP to go down? Volume deficit, certainly, or excessive vasodilation. Looking at cardiac output and index, what can cause those parameters to be increased? 
Well, we see the sympathetic nervous system as being one of the key causes to try and kick up the cardiac output and index, and that's related to just your body's endogenous catecholamine release. Um, Also, exogenous catecholamines, the things that we give to patients, such as epinephrine, uh, dobutamine, norepinephrine, dopamine, those are some examples Anything that has a positive inotropic effect, digitalis, amyrnone, milrinone as some examples, um, as well as hyperthyroidism and anemia, things that can cause the cardiac output and index to go down include anything that affects contractility. So now you have the patient that maybe has an MI or a patient with cardiomyopathy, somebody that's receiving beta blockers or somebody that has um, an increased afterload. So their systemic vascular resistance is high and the patient's not able to kick up their cardiac output and index in order to overcome that. So those are some things that can have an effect on cardiac output and index. Now, one of the things that we didn't talk about before, but I'm going to mention now is SVO2 saturation of venous oxygen. And we usually call it a mixed venous, mixed venous saturation. So the only way we really truly get a mixed venous gas is if we either draw it off of or have the patient hooked up to a oximetric fiber optic swan that is able to identify what the saturation is out in the pulmonary artery. So the way that we really and truly get a mixed venous sat is off a pulmonary artery catheter, either by drawing it off the distal port of the swan, which is out in that PA, or again, having a swan that has the uh, oximetric capabilities. Now, what's the benefit of getting a mixed venous gas? Well, When you think about it, you think about um, the blood leaving the left side of the heart. Let's just do some easy math. Let's say that blood leaves the left side of the heart 100% saturated. I know it's not 100%. Typically, it's, you know, normal's 97, 98%. But we're going to do some easy math here. If blood leaves the left side of the the heart 100% saturated and comes back to the right side of the heart, about 75% saturated, that tells us that the tissue requirement is at only 25%, which is normal. So blood leaves the left side at 100% saturated, comes back to the right side, 75% saturated. And so what the tissues really need then overall is 25% of the oxygen that's delivered. Now, the reason why we get this parameter from the distal port of the swan, either by drawing it or having a um, oximetric PA catheter, is because that really truly represents a mixed venous sample that comes from both the inferior and superior vena cava over into the right atrium, down into the right ventricle where it's quote-unquote mixed and then out into the PA. That's really and truly a mixed venous gas. But we find that we can get really, really close to that 
by not putting in a PA catheter. They're being used less and less now nowadays in comparison to the past. But we can draw a mixed central venous oxygen saturation and come very close to that. So really, when you start looking at a mixed venous oxygen saturation, what you're really looking at is you're looking at oxygen delivery and oxygen consumption. And so when you think about delivery, what are you thinking about here, guys? You're thinking about cardiac output. You're thinking about red blood cells. Does the patient have enough hemoglobin? And you're also thinking about lungs, aren't you? You're thinking about that hemoglobin that the heart is pumping out in the blood. Is it getting adequately oxygenated? So guys, I want you to think about if the tissues are not getting adequate flow, adequate oxygenation, what will happen? The tissues will extract more oxygen. It's almost like they're grabbing on to more oxygen because they know that there's a decrease in supply. Might be related to the heart, might be related to the hemoglobin, might be related to the lungs, but those tissues are grabbing on to oxygen like crazy. And so what we see then is we see that our mixed venous oxygen saturation will drop. So when we have a mixed venous sat that's 50, 48, 52, we're saying, oh my gosh, what is the reason that the tissues are grabbing onto all this oxygen? Is it because my cardiac output dropped? Is it because my patient's bleeding and I don't have enough hemoglobin? Is it because my patient isn't getting adequately oxygenated. So in order to kind of pull this all together and put it in perspective, what are some of the things that can cause an increase in SVO2 or SCVO2 if you are using a central venous catheter to draw a venous gas? Well, the things that can cause an increase in in, um, SVO2 or SCVO2 include bringing an increased oxygen supply to the patient. So that might be related to increasing the patient's FiO2, for example, or maybe we're increasing oxygen supply by adding PEEP, or maybe we've put the person on an inotrope and we've increased cardiac output, or we see that the SVO2 will go up in cases where there's a decrease in oxygen demand. So, well, anesthesia would be an example of that. Use of analgesics. How about when we paralyze somebody, when we sedate somebody, when we use hypothermia? Also, um, we see in the early phases of sepsis, we will see that the SVO2 or the SCVO2 increases related to um inefficient extraction of oxygen at the tissue level. Also a shift of the oxyhemoglobin curve to the left, which impairs unloading of oxygen to the tissues can also increase the SVO2. And we'll be talking about the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve more when we get to um, respiratory. What kinds of things can decrease the SVO2? Anytime you have a decrease in oxygen supply or delivery, that makes a lot of sense, right? So a drop in cardiac output and index, 
a drop in hemoglobin, so somebody that's bleeding, or a decrease in O2 sat. So somebody in need of a tweakage in their FiO2 or PEEP, for example, they're not on enough FiO2 or PEEP, and they have a decreased O2 sat. Also, it could be somebody that has a huge metabolic load. So think about somebody that's seizuring. Think about somebody that's shivering or in pain or hyperthermic. Patients with increased work of breathing where we have an increase in metabolic demand. So guys, since we're already at the hour point here, I am going to be splitting the hemodynamic section up into two parts. This, of course, was part one, episode seven. Episode eight will be clinical decision-making using hemodynamics. So that's where we'll talk about shock states and uh, hemodynamic numbers and, and things like that. So stay tuned for that in episode eight. Thank you so much, everybody, for taking an hour of your time, really, to join me for this podcast. I appreciate you being here please head on over to my website and subscribe so that you can receive notifications of upcoming podcasts. And also, so you have a chance to uh, tap into the brain teasers uh, that I have listed for you. The first one is out there. As soon as I'm done with hemodynamics, I'm going to be putting a hemodynamic brain teaser out there as well. It will incorporate both what we've talked about today as well as part two, which is decision-making with hemodynamics. Thank you very much for being here. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll talk again soon. Bye-bye.